And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, I will point out that this is another episode recorded during the uh, week-long festivities known as Dragon Con. So I'll be riding solo, but I have an outstanding guest for you today. You might not have heard of him, but he's kind of awesome. We've got Jamie Ibsen. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Hello. Hello. So can you tell the listeners and, and viewers a little bit about yourself in case they don't know who you are? If they don't know who I am, uh, let's see. I'm 40. I'm Canadian. Uh, I started writing when I went to LibertyCon for the first time, which was LibertyCon 30. Um, I, uh, I'm pretty well hooked in with uh, Chris Kennedy Publishing for a lot of what I've been writing. Um, a couple of publications with Bain and Anthologies. Um, married to the lovely Michelle, we have cats, and uh, I'm coming to you from the Maritimes, which is east of Maine, uh, which confuses some people. But yeah, it, it still it goes east even further, and I'm about ten minutes from uh, from the main border. So, yeah, here I am. All right, and I will have you know that I have it on great authority that forty is the new twenty. That's what oh, I tell good. myself anyway. That's the uh -huh. mantra in the beer. Like, well, no, your hair's not falling out. I'm just getting a haircut okay as soon as they start issuing new knees i'll believe you <laughs> the va up there doesn't do that for you i mean i'm telling you i could get prosthetics pretty soon i'm gonna be like robocop just well watch. this is kind of why i wanted to write herbicide was the whole like you know when the parts are failing just swap them out for the new like kick-ass cyborg version nice nice although i had a friend of mine it started a series we co-wrote and then when our writing styles differed, he kept the one series, but it was the cyborg core. And the whole premise was as a joke. Somebody went to the VA and instead of keeping them, they turned them into a cyborg and put them back to work. Well, that's uh, Chris Minder wrote that. I thought that's hilarious. That's pretty yeah. close to how it works in the in the contractor war Whoa. setting. Um, yeah, do you have uh, do you have like a veterans administration for like the hospitals for veterans to get hurt or something up there? Um, well, no. So um, as I understand it, when uh, you've got vets in the U.S., then then the VA like has you go to VA hospitals and um, see VA doctors and all that kind of thing. Um, Veterans Affairs uh, in Canada, well, like Canadians, our healthcare is paid for by our provincial government, right? Okay. Uh, whether that's a good thing or not, you know, is subject to rigorous debate. But uh, but what happens with VA is they will often take um, an injury that you've suffered or an illness that you've accumulated through service, and um, it turns into like a, a pensionable cash payment, and then okay. they'll connect you to um, doctors and stuff like that that might not be covered by uh, by your provincial healthcare plan. Uh, psychological stuff, um, you know, say say you've come back with an operational stress injury or PTSD. Um, seeing a psychologist for counseling would not be covered under our plan, but it would be through VA uh, okay. or VAC. Um, but, uh, you know, other other stuff that comes up, sometimes it's just like, well, you know, here, here's a little more money so you don't have to work as hard. And that's not such a bad thing. <laughs> so we have the running joke here that the Veterans Administration is where the, the U.S. government gives you a second chance to die for your country. I have seen that t-shirt, yes. Yeah, sometimes. My favorite t-shirt was a buddy of mine had that said, uh, disabled American veteran, some assembly required, because he lost his leg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I saw one um, that says, uh, the enemy has made a terrible mistake because now my leg is bulletproof. <laughs> I like that one. 
So all right. Uh, so the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we found them. And so I actually met Jamie through Seska. Um, she's introduced me to some pretty cool people, and I'm sure you met Seska at a bar somewhere because that's how she meets everybody. Well, it would have been a Liberty Con bar, but yes. Um, I want to say it was actually probably not even a bar. It might have been a room party. Um, okay. My uh, my introduction to the CKP gang in general was the release party for the third book in the Four Horsemen series, which was the anthology called A Fistful of Credits. And, uh, and so LibertyCon 30, the first two books were out, Cartwright's Cavaliers as Brand Solutions. And then the big party was um, for A Fistful of Credits. And, um, you know, you could hear them laughing and hollering from two floors away, and it was a good time. And me being awkward and not knowing anybody at that moment, walked in and fled like 10 minutes later because I was awkward and socially terrified and all that kind of thing. But it's worked out really well. So, you know, it was all good. Um, the only person I recognized when I walked in was Jason Cordova, and we've written a book together since. But at the time, I just recognized him because he was the dude who had the green hair. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So now, because this is the Blasters and Blade podcast, you have to answer the religion question, and this determines whether you get to stay. So, oh, Aliens, oh. District 9, or Starship Troopers? What was the first one? Aliens? Aliens. Aliens, 100%. I thought about putting the Predator because Predator versus Aliens confuses people, but they were two separate ones as well. But I didn't want to confuse you, so I was trying to keep it simple. No, no I mean, like, you want to see a movie chock full of quotes, it's Aliens, right? Like, yeah. everybody who knows it, they can practically recite the entire movie. It's up there with Monty Python and quotable movies. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, I ain't got time to bleed. Yeah. Um, all right, and because we're polytheistic here at the Blasters and Blades, King Arthur... The 13th Warrior or Warcraft? 13th Warrior. Good movie, uh, by the way. Um, it's because of that movie that I tried Mead for the first time. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I just wanted to Fair see enough. what it was about. Because you remember he could he could drink the mead because it was honey-based, not wheat-based. The the scene that I remember best from 13th Warrior is is the the duel. And they've got their shields lined up, and they're yeah. and there's like the huge tank dude beating on the Viking. And uh, and his shield keeps breaking, and he's just getting clobbered. And then and then at the end of it, he just like steps aside, ganks the guy in the kidneys. He drops dead and fights over. And it looked like he was losing when he was just messing with them the entire. <laughs> I can appreciate that. And so, you know, he's like, "What the hell was that here?" You know, like, "Oh my god!" And he's like, "Now he has to worry about everything he can't see." And that was like a big whoa insightful kind of moment so so yeah. i remember that scene really really well that was totally cool and i know warcraft is considered controversial because some people that played the game hated the movie but having never played the game i enjoyed the movie and was kind of disappointed they never made a second one i played uh, the original first two when they were still real-time strategy games i have never played warcraft 3 and i've spent all of five minutes playing world of warcraft and decided it was not my jam so I know a little bit. So when I was in grad school, one of my classmates like, oh, this girl you work with, you got to hook me up with her. And I'm like, all right. She was interested too. So I set them up on a date. They did their thing and they both wanted it. He walked out in the middle of a date where it was like a sure thing for him. Romantically. I'm not going to presume otherwise. He walked out. Oh, my clan is, is uh, raiding today. Bye. I'm like, what? No. Oh my. She found someone else and he's still single. Oh, my. Yes. <laughs> So, so I, I remember, awkward, you realize you're not as bad as that. 
what I remember best about the uh, the original Warcraft games, uh, the RTSs, was you could keep clicking on the units and they would say different things. But if you clicked on them four or five times, the things they would say would change. Um, you know, and like you start clicking on um, an orc sailing ship, like an ironclad ship out in the water. Eventually, like you clicking and making the boat rock makes the orc seasick. You know, that kind <laughs> of comedy and and there was sheep that would just like wander around grazing in the uh in the maps and if you keep clicking on them eventually they would explode it was just it was so random um you know but there was there was a ton of character to the setting right out the gate whether uh before it ever went to the um uh the action rpg that it you know monstrosity that it became um you know and and it was one of the first times that they really did a good job of having a story-based campaign. Um, I think, you know, before that, it tended to pretty much just be like, well, here's a map, here's a bad guy, you know, go, you know, smash each other's buildings and stuff. Um, and the only other time that it had really been done was the was the Dune uh, RTS, um, mm -hmm. the Frank Herbert's Dune, and that one goes all the way back to, like, the mid-'90s. So I'm dating myself. But, um, yeah, never played World of Warcraft, not really my thing. Um, and and the the intensity of the players and you know oh my clan is raiding gotta go you know that level of insane dedication is is very not me i like to be able to put my games down and come back to it whenever i want yeah and if you do the real-time stuff that means you always have to worry about like keeping shielded or whatever because whereas with when i play skyrim when i turn it off the world ceases to be yeah the game is game is on pause right i mean the most i can commit to a game at one time is 15 minutes in the world of tank scrap and that's about it so yeah so uh because we here at the blasters and blaze podcast like both the fantastical and the scientific what was your first love sci-fi or fantasy oh boy um it all kind of mushed together um my dad had a, an amazing science fiction and fantasy bookshelf when i was growing up and he had the forever war and a bunch of other joe haldeman books he had three quarters of heinlein stuff i read starship troopers four or five times but i also remember in grade seven my uh my grade seven teacher i was i was tested as being um advanced in reading pretty early on i think it would have been about grade five or grade six and so in grade seven, my teacher comes over and he thumps this enormous tome down on my desk. And he's like, let me know what you think. Well, it was the omnibus version of Dita Paxanarian. And, oh. you know, a thousand pages, a little intimidating for a grade seven kid. But Dita Paxanarian to this day remains my favorite novel of all time. And Pax is probably my favorite character of all time um the the arc for her uh from lowly sheep farmer's daughter to blessed paladin of the gods who you know you know not going to spoil the ending but who you know manages to figure out this ancient mystery and and right an ancient wrong um absolutely tremendous and the sacrifice that she makes at the very end was absolutely heartrending so um you know Elizabeth moon is uh she she wrote it and Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, I've never read anything that comes close. So, okay. so yeah, complicated answer. Um, I don't know which I read first though. What was your first memory of engaging in the genre of speculative fiction at large? Was it um, that, I mean, do you have a specific or does it all blur together? Well, again, my dad's my dad's bookshelf. 
Um, I've forgotten one. Dorsai. Dorsai is the other one. Um, right. So like he had he had Dorsai. He had Starship Troopers. He had Forever War. There was Callahan's Cross Time Saloon mixed in there. Um, a whole bunch of Spider Robinson stuff. And so like my early teenagehood and and even earlier really, um, Dad started me. Dad played D and D in the seventies um, and into the early eighties, and I came along in eighty one. And uh, and then when I was ten or eleven, I started asking about these Dungeons and Dragons books, not knowing what they were. And he said, "Well, you know, imagine that you're playing snakes and ladders, but I have to describe the maze to you, you know, and that there's monsters in there that are hunting you too." And he like just riffed an entire like introductory adventure kind of a thing as we're heading to the um, to these caverns just off the top of his head. And and I could. My dad's a really articulate guy. He he um, writes professionally for a living um, as a copyright editor, but but he's very articulate, and so he was able to just paint the story in my mind, and and I just like couldn't stop grinning, and and so I dug into the books, and uh, and I think by the time I was eleven or twelve, um, Dad tried to run a campaign for me and my brother and my two stepbrothers. And I was the oldest of the bunch, so we didn't really stick with it for very long because I think Craig was only three or four at the time. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was, um, I mean, that was, that was it, you know, here we am 30 years later and I'm still hooked on the stuff. So it's all good. Nice. So what is it about speculative fiction that you love? Um, well, I think I love the different stories for different reasons. Fantasy is, is amazing because of the power of magic and the power of, um, you know, bending the universe if if that makes sense um you know the different fantasy settings that are out there they each are in a sense defined by um how the world is is bent how the world is different whether it's a low magic setting whether it's you know um magic does everything for you um you know, spell punk stuff where they use spell effects to create modern um, technology, but through magic instead, that kind of a thing. And, and that's got a huge appeal, um, you know, and, and in fantasy, like the nerds, the bookish types tend to end up, you know, being 20th level wizards. And that's got its own appeal as well. Um, with sci-fi, you can start to ask the what if questions, start with your own existence and then, and then start asking questions as to how the future might go or how the future might be changed if this particular thing came along. And that's, uh, that's a little bit of the inspiration for, uh, for Myrmidons Inc. I know we're not really there yet, but, um, but the idea that in Myrmidons, um, that the technology exists that people whose bodies are failing them can um, get an upgrade and replace, um, you know, organs that are failing. Or um, in the Myrmidons case, when they have an illness like muscular dystrophy, um, that they can go to a doc and be like, all right, I want you to cut everything off and I want an all new everything, basically leave the brain and the spinal cord and replace everything else. And, um, and that's, and that's a little bit of the philosophy behind it is like, what kind of a person goes to the doctor and has everything cut off? Um, you know, maybe if you go to the doctor to asking for that, you ought to be talking to a psychiatrist. Um, but, uh, but the other question is, well, what if, what if you're staring death in the eye and this is, this is a choice you have, um, one that doesn't exist today. So, you know, it's, um, 
they're both cool and they're both cool for completely different reasons, I think. Okay. Yeah. So at what point in time, as you start replacing parts, do you stop being you? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. And my take on it is, uh, you know, so long as, um, you know, the thinking part of you remains there, then you're still you. Um, Shadowrun, for example, as, as characters in the Shadowrun game system get cyborg upgrades, their soul is slowly chipped away and they lose that ability to, uh, to manipulate magic. You know, and in the game sense, it, it literally caps their effectiveness if they were to use magical powers and stuff like that. I didn't really dig into that um, with the Myrmidon setting. Um, you know, with, with cyberpunk in general, like transhumanism is one of the themes and um and so rather than delving too much into you know how human is is a cyborg when all that's left is the brain um i i set up a kind of a a foil between the myrmidons and the gal who's basically the main character of the story selena selena is a genetically edited um cat girl sicario assassin and she's product from paragon savage genetics and um and so this is the the balance between those two you know is is like the perfect synthetic human weapon versus the perfect biological human-ish weapon you know and uh, and the two of them kind of square off against each other but but it doesn't go quite that way so um yeah so i don't know if seen, I question but you did have you seen the um the clone wars that star wars did um with the disney plus no, I haven't watched any of the any of the animated Star Wars stuff. Um, I know I can get at it, but I generally don't really watch TV like at all. And I don't watch a lot anymore any either. Um, but no, one of the things they did on that show, but like mostly what I watch is by exposing my kids to that kind of stuff and watching stuff with them kind of thing. Um, but one of the things they did in the Clone Wars is they started talking about the nature of free will because they were literally bred to be fighters. Because they were cloned and they were flash grown, their lives were shorter. Um, and then they started having decay and they were sort of forced to follow orders. And, and one of the things it started doing was like asking those existential questions of what it means to be alive, what it means to be free. And I, I think that's the, the beauty of, of sci-fi. You can ask those questions yeah. because though they're questions we might very well face someday as, as technology improves, right? Like, sure. I mean, we already have some people that are more plastic than real anymore, it seems with all the cosmetic surgery. So you're already starting to get to those kind of questions. And that's what I like. Uh, is the ability to wax philosophical about about yeah. various topics that you can do in a sci-fi setting and make it fun, unlike the philosophy classes you sat through in college where it's like, yeah. are you really there? And what is there really? Like I had some of those weird questions where like, the right answer was, is the chair even there? And it's, yeah. that, that was a little too hokey for me. But, but when you see it introduced in a tangible way in sci-fi, like it's real, it makes sense. Like you can wrap sure. your head around yeah. that. It's it's a bit of a study in future ethics. You know, let's worry about these problems before they come up. Um, and uh, and yeah, like with um, with Ocelot, uh, you know, the Paragon Savage Genetics is this mega corporation, and they're not exactly bad guys, but there aren't really any good guys when it comes to mega corporations in the setting anyway. Um, and the thing that's really life too. pretty me, I'd say in real life too. Okay. So um, the thing with PSG is they uh, they've created these these animal hybrid bioweapons that uh, that they then rent or sell to to whomever 
Um, and uh, and the, the government of La Republica del Escobar is their biggest client. And so that's where they've got their headquarters set up. And that's where all of the new cutting edge um, technology is developed. And, and the way that uh, PSG coerces the genies into cooperating, um, it's actually something that my buddy Quincy Allen came up with. Um, he and I were, t uh, um, I had written a short story that became basically the climax of herbicide for the We Dare anthology that I edited a couple years ago. Um, Quincy was invited to the anthology and he was like, well, I want to do this kind of island of Dr. Moreau kind of a thing. And I said, well, let me tell you about PSG because their characters, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, scene in, in my story. Um, but there's an awful lot about them that I haven't really delved into. And so he came up with this idea of um, what he calls the methionine protocol. And methionine is a amino acid that we all have in our bodies. And the story in the setting is that um, the genies have been selectively edited so that their bodies don't produce methionine. If they don't get it in the form of regular injections every three, four days, then their cells begin to break down at the molecular level and they more or less will die and disintegrate due to organ failure and stuff like this. And, um, and so, so that's the leash that PSG has on their genies. And Quincy's story from We Dare was about how the chief geneticist feels terrible about what's happening to what she sees as her children. She, she's accepting PSG's money to do the research um, because she's a driven scientist that way, but um, but she doesn't want to see them enslaved. And that's basically the situation they find themselves in, uh, the, the genies do. So um, so she finds a way to reverse the methionine protocol and, uh, and make her getaway. Um, and uh, Quincy's going to be expanding that short story into a novel, probably in 2022. Um, but, but that's really like the, the core of it, right? Is that the genies, they're born with free will, but there's consequences if they start screwing around. And uh, and that's like Dr. Fujimoto's big thing is finding a way to set them free. Um, because if the methionine protocol remains in place, then then the genies will are they can be literally killed at any time just by stopping their access to the injections. Um, so, yeah, like the people who made that decision at PSG, they're scumbags. Um, but there's good people working for PSG as well who are just trying to make the best of a bad situation. Okay, so we dove in a little bit when we were talking philosophical to uh, some of the universe, which we normally get to a little bit later. But let's get to get back on track. But you know, introduce you to the audience a little bit. So, how did your love of speculative fiction? Because clearly, you're a reader. How did that translate and um, transition into you writing stories yourself? Um, going to literary changed everything. Um, you know, blanket statement. I had never been to a literary con before. LibertyCon is an amazing one to go to because it has such a high concentration of professionals, um, you know, between the science types and the author types and the publishing types. And like, that's, that's a really mushy overlapping Venn diagram. Um, you know, I'll never forget, uh, I'd been talking to Gary Poole at, at uh, uh, he works with John Ringo on a lot of stuff. I'd been talking to him about this idea for a novel that I'd had. Um, I show up and the first panel I go to is how to approach publishers and Gary is speaking at the panel and he's never met me. 
Um, you know, and as I'm sitting there in the audience listening to this panel, my heart is just sinking because by the end of it, I'm like, oh God, I've been doing this all wrong. And then I caught Gary on his way out the door and we went outside and we chatted. I introduced myself and, and he's like, no, 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 like, like we're good. Okay. It's, you know, you haven't, you know, cheated. You haven't like, you know, pissed anybody off, you know, just by talking to me about your interest in writing zombie stuff. Um, so it's all good. Right. And that was kind of the, uh, my introduction to this is feasible. But then the question was, well, you know, do I have anything finished that I could do anything with? No, not really. But meeting people at LibertyCon opened a lot of doors because now I had emails that I could send stuff to and, you know, write query letters. And um, and that's how I hooked in with Chris Kennedy was uh, he had this short story anthology. And uh, I wrote if they had any opportunities for a brand new writer who didn't know what he was doing. And Chris was like, well, send me something and we'll see. You know, I work with a lot of new uh, authors and I'm happy to help and, and coach and teach. Um, you know, Chris has his doctorate in education. And so that's a passion of his. And um, and so he's taught me a ton. And then there's other people that work uh, with uh, CKP that also teach fiction and stuff like that. So um, everything changed when I went to LibertyCon 30, you know, and I owe Brandy and Fritz and everybody on staff at LibertyCon a huge debt of gratitude um, for putting on such an awesome convention because it's not an exaggeration to say that attending LibertyCon 30 changed my life. So that's how I got started. That's cool. So, sorry about that. He's excited. Um, yes. So many authors let their own real life experience influence the stories they tell. So is there any one specific formidable moment for you that shapes you as a storyteller? I wouldn't say so. My first novel that I wrote was um, in the Four Horsemen universe, and I did that with Jason Cordova. And Gunboat Diplomacy, um, it's written from two opposing points of view. Neither one of them is really the hero. They're just the antagonist to the other half of the story. And, um, and the story focuses on a pair of aliens. One looks like tigers, and that was mostly what Jason wrote. And then the other one, and they're, and they're basically space pirates, um, and then there's Rent, who is an Ugar, and the Ugar are these enormous purple don't care bears, um, you know, who are known for, you know, rending things limb from limb. Well, Rent is only like the seventh Ugar who's ever made it to the end of space cop training in Four Horsemen. They're called the Peacemakers. Um, and the last thing that a Peacemaker does before receiving his badge is he is he, he's tasked with a mission. And he has to go out and he's given his mission parameters and needs to work the problem and come to a solution. And so that was fun because I spent 14 years as an RCMP officer and I got to write the rookie space cop story, except my rookie space cop was a nine foot tall bear. Um, and, uh, and he was awesome. So, um, so that was a lot of fun, you know, being able to, you know, go back to, to rookie days of policing, you know, not that I dealt with a lot of space pirates, but, um, but there's certain things that translate over really well. And that was a lot of fun. Okay. Well, actually you were, um, so Kennedy has a policy when it comes to expanding lore. He who's, uh, was it the firstest with the mostest wins? More or less. Yeah, and so I actually had in that same anthology a uh, a story about a peacemaker, and I wasn't a cop, but I was uh was writing right. that. He's like, you turned yours in like forty five minutes after he did, so you got to redo all of this stuff to fit his canon. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I yeah. didn't know who you were, but I was cursing you. 
Oh, I came along afterwards. Um, Kevin Eikenberry was the was the one who turned in the first Peacemaker story, and he's oh, been okay. It wasn't driving. Good, I didn't hear, okay. Yeah, there's a parallel Peacemaker line to the stories that's about to conclude. Actually, um, Harbinger is the last book in that series, and it's coming out. I got a sneak peek at it. It's awesome, and it's been building for a long time. Um, but uh, but yeah, Ike is one of those guys who's taught me a ton. You know, um, he's given classes on uh, on story structure and building um, sympathetic heroes and and dastardly villains and all that kind of thing. And um, I've really taken a lot of his stuff to heart because he's a tremendous teacher. He's you know able to really drill down on things. You know, I've written to him a couple times. I'm like. So I'm kind of struggling with this thing, you know, and we talked about this, um, you know, and I'm and I'm not sure how to work that in. And he's like, like that. And he'll like two sentences and it's like the light went on and and I can see exactly where he's coming from. And then I just have to dial up a certain aspect of the story by 10% and booyah, it's all good. So yeah, um, I didn't come along until much later. Uh, there was the original trilogy of anthologies, um, A Fistful of Credits, for a few credits more, and the good, the bad, and the merc, um, and then uh, and then my first short with Four Horsemen was in Luck Is Not a Factor, and that came out um, a while a while later. I want to say that was early 2019. I'd have to check. Okay, so I had um, the second anthology, which is for a few credits more, and then I had my last one was Luck Is Not a Factor. It was my the two I was in. Yep, um, with the green cover. Yeah, I submitted for one more, but he's the only one who's ever rejected a story. So it was sort of fortuitous for me because I realized what I did wrong. I violated the canon, but if you don't, like, the Bible that he gave me was the original one. So they obviously yeah. expanded well, it. Yeah, it's grown so fast. And you I know. didn't think to ask for the updated version. So everything <laughs> I had written was good with the first Bible, but not the expanded one. Sure. Uh, and by then, because it was, like, so close, I'm like, you know, don't worry about it. I'll use it for something else. And I ended up turning it into a novella that will get published somewhere else but nice. uh but yeah it's uh they say you're not a, i've heard some people joke that you're not a real author until you've been rejected once at least so yeah. chris kennedy was that for me so i got oh, i got wow. it in the box now i can move on i'm sure he's happy to help out <laughs> yeah i've told him that he thinks it's hilarious Very but good. Uh, but he's a good guy for a sailor um speaking <laughs> of military and sailors oh, here. Here. yeah yeah well you know no one's perfect yeah. but um you mentioned earlier in your bio mentions that you were in the Canadian military, you were specifically in the reserves. And then when you got out, you went into law enforcement uh, as a Mountie. So how do you feel like your time in uniform affects the stories you tell? Um, well, it's, it's interesting a bit because um, so many of the readers, uh, you know, that, that read military sci-fi in particular are American veterans that um, I've both had positive and negative feedback when I've tried to bring in Canadianness to that. You know, um, a, a Canadian E5 is a master corporal. That confuses the heck out of, you know, Americans. They've never heard of such a creature. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the other thing that I like to talk them about is how many sergeants there are in the, uh, in the U.S. military. It's, you know, I joke that you guys ran out of nouns and just started slapping other random adjectives in front of sergeant until you, you know, hit E9. Um, whereas in the Canadian forces, a... Uh, pardon me? That's accurate. <laughs> in the Canadian forces, um, and then in the U.S., warrant officers, right? They're their own unique, um, 
technical expert specialists that that aren't quite ncos they're not quite officers they are commissioned but they're not like lieutenants and captains and stuff it's a really weird um intermediary thing in the canadian forces a warrant officer is a, is a sergeant who got promoted um that's all there is to it you know your your platoon's senior nco is going to be a warrant officer and um and then you've got like your company sergeant major would be a master warrant and so on so when i start throwing it around canadian ranks people immediately perk up and they're like well this is weird this is different um that kind of thing and then uh and then when i did that story for we shall rise in the third black tide rising anthology um the story was um about a bunch of canadians who rode out most of the plague in our norad bunker in um Kind of north center ontario um it's it's a fascinating facility it's it's a long ways down i think 600 feet underground is this bunker and that's where we track santa claus from um but uh but that was where you know according to what i wrote the canadian um surviving government fled to with whatever uniforms they could marshal to protect them and then after canadian winter has done its business then they start working their way towards um, the coasts. And so our story picks up with some of those survivors working their way through the prairies. And, uh, and I got um, you know, a, a really cool review in Black Tide Risings, or in, sorry, in We Shall Rise, where one of the guys um, reviewing the book was like, you know, I'm a Canadian veteran. I really appreciated the Canadian story. It was super cool to see us finally pop up somewhere in fiction, because generally speaking, we don't. So, you know, I try to, I try to, you know, get a little bit of Canadianness in there somewhere. Um, in Myrmidons, you know, with us having spread out to the stars, um, the planet of Rideau is basically the Canadian planet. And there's, you know, hockey jokes and stuff like that. But Maple syrup? Uh, uh, well, see, I don't want to get too close to the maple syrup because of that whole um, uh troy rising series that john ringo did where maple syrup was the key to unlocking the galaxy in the first place um <laughs> you know um really? when when tyler vernon starts selling maple syrup to the glatoon and he becomes a billionaire overnight um i i giggled a lot at that um you know and then uh, and then the only other stuff really as far as being in the army and and being law enforcement is is like the combat and the fighting stuff you know i've never been in combat i didn't go to afghanistan i didn't go to iraq um peacekeeping in bosnia was pretty chill um except for the last three weeks after 9 11. um but i've been in plenty of fist fights and i've been punched out a bunch of times and i've punched and out a playing hockey right well not just on the ice um you know uh i was a mountie in surrey which is a city of like six hundred thousand people i think and um and it has a bit of a rep for being kind of rough in certain areas of town and um and that's where i was posted straight out of um the rcmp academy which is called depot uh so as a brand new depot recruit i went to the roughest part of the roughest city that the mounties police in and gotten more than my fair share of scraps so um you know i know what it's like to have to fight through getting punched in the nose and uh, and that sort of thing and I know that there are some authors who are martial artists specifically so that they can better articulate, you know, their hand-to-hand -hand combat scenes. Um, the uh, the thing with martial arts I find is that there's rules, and um, and on the street there really aren't many. So yeah.
couple different things. Well, the Canadians, though, you have a leg up um, when it comes to intergalactic warfare. Because there's a little known secret that um, um, that we learned if you watch Stargate is that all alien planets look like Canada. So you guys have got well, that like going for you. Well, and you know what? It's a big country. We got a lot of different places that look like a lot of different things. So um, you know, I was I was in BC for almost 16 years, and now I'm in the Maritimes, um, and uh, completely different part of the country completely different accents, completely different people. Um, it's been a lot of fun. It's been an adventure, um, you know, but uh, this being my third home in uh, in Canada, it just strikes me how different places can be from place to place. So, yeah. So, well, I mean, but you got that going for you. Like I said, I think there are very few places on earth where you can get so many terrain features in one place. That's one of the reasons they film in New Zealand so much. Yeah. Because, yeah. And so, but you're a lot closer to Hollywood, so it's a lot cheaper trip for them. So I guess that's true. Yeah, I would so, love to see filming up here, actually, in New Brunswick. It's beautiful. It's rolling hills, and uh, you know, like when when Americans think of stereotypical Canada, it's right here. Um, yeah. it's you know the rolling hills and the maple. Uh, everybody becomes like a maple sugar farmer for about three weeks in, at the end of winter. Um, everybody's got camp silver birch trees, moose, bears, um, Canada geese, t intimidating people everywhere you go. Um, New Brunswick is the only truly bilingual province we have. Quebec is French only, and almost everywhere else is English only. And then New Brunswick truly is bilingual. It's almost 50-50 um, French speaking and, and English speaking. Um, the maritime accent is alive and well here, and that's the stereotypical Canadian accent. So, so it's a lot of fun, you know. I think um, if uh, if Americans come up this way to explore, they come away with with that like stereotype really reinforced. That, uh, that you know, this is Canada. Here we are. Well, I mean, we we as Americans learned everything we need to know from South Park. Blame Canada. And can well, that and Bob and Doug and take off you hoser. So yeah. <laughs> so uh, getting us back on track. When you write, you know, military or just in general, do you ever draw on people you knew from your time, both as a Mountie and as a um, Canadian soldier? Absolutely. Absolutely. Names change to protect the guilty or the innocent. Sometimes. Sometimes not. Um, there's uh, yeah. Say no more. So we've talked a little bit about how your time in uniform affects the stories as you tell them. Does it affect how you engage with stories now as both a reader or a watcher if you're watching TV or whatever, how you engage with content? Hmm. So for instance, if I watch a movie and they have a gun that they never seem to ever reload, I'm gonna notice where most people just don't. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, you know, and guys with belt feds, you know, just like ripping off twenty or thirty rounds at a time. Um, yeah. You know that kind of thing. Shooting, shooting um, recoilless rifles and bazookas indoors. Um, you know that makes me laugh. Um, pursuits. Um, one of my one of my favorite pursuits, and it's not really a pursuit, but it's kind of a pursuit in a movie, was in Way of the Gun. You know, 20 years old, Ryan Philippe and uh, Benicio Del Toro as these scumbags. And they've kidnapped this woman because they're the bad guys, even though they're kind of the protagonists. And the bodyguards are chasing them. And they're in their little car. And they're and they're slow. Like, they've got it in drive, but they're not even touching the gas. 
and the bodyguards are, are running from cover to cover and, and, you know, trying to catch up to them. And they're just like slowly retreating, you know, little bit by little bit. And then eventually they just like shut the door and hit the gas. And the bodyguards realize they're now like 200 yards from their car and they've got to run back in order to be able to catch up. I thought that scene was brilliant, you know, because nobody in their right mind wants to get into an actual pursuit. They are dangerous as hell. Odds are somebody's going to die. Um, you know, and there's so much potential for disaster. And, uh, and so, you know, up here, generally speaking, the police don't pursue anywhere near as frequently as they do in the States. But there was an incident in Way of the Gun where, the, where they were dangerously genre savvy, if you want to call it that. And, uh, and they knew to, to get their bad guys, their opponents, their enemies away from their car so that they didn't get in a pursuit in the first place. And I thought that was genius. I like it. We only the only thing I ever dealt with. I mean, other than obviously gunfights on the highways in Iraq, but as far as in general, like our my experience with cop type stuff, uh, even in media, something like watching a cops episode where it's some guy that looks like he hasn't left a donut shop in a couple of years, and yeah. then he's hopping and puffing, and the the the, the perp is like basically speed walking away. <laughs> Luckily, tasers are the great equalizers these days. Well, they can be, but you got to be mighty close for those. You know, um, a taser is not a distance weapon um, at all. And, uh, and they kind of disallowed the shotgun version of the taser round, which I think is a shame. Because um, if you ever watch the video on the 12-gauge on the taser rounds, they are a sight to behold. They, they launch the entire package down the barrel and there's a pair of prongs that connect and then there's like a trailing like a, a porcupine ball thing and the spines are what connects the circuit and uh, and and they they had to dis, uh, discontinue them because with a standard taser you ride the lightning for five seconds and that's generally enough to take the fight out of you and uh for the member deploying it to jump in and um and like chicken wing and arm, get you into an arm bar or a wrist lock or something like that so they can move into cuffing. Well, the shotgun version is is designed to be deployed from an awful lot further away. So, so it cycles for 20 seconds at a time. I cannot conceive of how much that would hurt to be, you know, electrocuted the way that they do um, for 20 seconds at a time. That would be awful. Um, but I mean, might also be a little funny. Depends. Have you, um, like, so for instance, in the U.S. Army, one of the things they train us with, we have to go through the gas chamber so you know what it's like. Yeah. I've seen a lot of MPs in the U.S. Army that had to get shot with the, the, the taser as part of the collocation. Is that something you guys do as well? Uh, it used to be. Um, they uh, they stopped doing it um, a couple years before I got out of the, the force. The, uh, the really crummy thing was getting pepper sprayed. Um, yeah, that's, awesome. week, yeah, that's week eight at depot and it's part of defensive tactics that's like an escalation they start with well what if you're arresting somebody and they're cooperative well you tell them to you know assume the arresting position you guide them through it then you go in and you cuff them and you're good um and then you know there's an escalation there's an escalation and then eventually you hit the point where you're deploying pepper <laughs> and so on that friday they uh they have everybody in the troop lined up about 30 of us and they would spray you with an entire can and then you would have a your defensive tactic it's like your your cop class instructors who deploy the spray and then your defensive tactics instructors are standing by and they had a knee strike bag for um like uh 
kickboxing, and you've got to knee the bag 10 times while suffering the effects of the spray. Once you've hit it 10 times, they throw a radio on the ground as if yours has fallen off your belt. Now you got to like go around on the ground and find it and then call in an emergency backup request. And as soon as they do that, they give you a towel and you can start mopping it off. Doesn't matter. We get sprayed on Friday and it still sucks on Tuesday. It's miserable. Um, you know, I, I had a uh, I had an arrest of a drunk driver the one time and before he was arrested, he was asking questions about whether tasers or pepper spray was worse. And uh, I said, well, look, you know, tasers suck. They suck a lot, but they only suck for five seconds at a time. And, you know, pepper spray sucks for days. And then later on, after he kicked out the window of my police car and uh, and was bashing his face off the silent patrolman and stuff, I'm telling him to stop. And he's like, why? And I'm like, do you remember you asked about whether tasers or pepper spray were worse? Yeah, I don't have a taser. So, <laughs> so this is how it's going to go. And he didn't care. And he smashed out the window. And yeah, he got a blast of the good stuff. And um, and then, you know, he tried to kick out another PC and it was it was drama. Um, but, uh, but that was like, that was one of the, the moments I'm never going to forget, you know, is why should I stop? Well, I don't have a taser. So <laughs> you should put that in a book somewhere. Yeah. Um, that would be, that'd be funny. So, so transitioning away from the writing side in the, in the army side, uh, let's talk about things from a fan angle. So you started writing, right? As the pandemic was making the world a little crazy. So, you know, you haven't had a chance to have all the experiences at cons and such, but have you ever spotted anyone out in the wilds reading uh, one of your books? No, no, not yet. Um, unless do parents count. I don't know. Yeah, totally. Did they buy it or did you give oh, it to them? Well, if parents count, then yes, absolutely. Did they buy it or did you gift it to them? Maybe a little both. Stage pictures still count. I'll go with it. All right. All right. So, um, right. This is the part of the interview. Uh, this is, we've, you know, waxed poetic about all kinds of topics. So we're running this episode a little long, but I'm cool with it. So this is the part of the introduction. Normally we'd be doing this at the 20 minute mark, not 40, but can you tell us everything you've written? Give us the reader's digest of your, uh, your bibliography. What I've written. Um, stuff that you're going to see my name on the cover for would be uh, the three We Dare anthologies. Uh, we Dare is the first one. We Dare Semper Paratus is the uh, post survivors of the apocalypse. Um, that one was awkwardly scheduled to come out in 2020, so that was unfortunate. Um, and then uh, We Dare No Man's Land came out earlier this year. Um, that one was kind of putting the, the focus on, and it's a bit of a love letter to badass women of science fiction like Ellen Ripley and Sarah Connor and Princess Leia and Cara Dune and and those kinds of characters. Um, so that one came out earlier this year. Uh, I have I wrote Gunboat Diplomacy with Jason Cordova in Four Horsemen. Um, Unshackled will be out. I wrote in Four Horsemen with Casey Moores. That's going to be out in a little less than a month. Um, I've got a, a novel called Pacific Shogun, which is post-apocalyptic Pacific Northwest in uh, Christopher Woods' Fallen World Anthology or Fallen World series. Um, and then, uh, and then, um, Myrmidons just came out um, two days ago. It came out on the third. Um, on top of that, I've got uh, stories in Freehold Resistance, Freehold Defiance, and We Shall Rise from Bane, and then a bunch of other short stories along the way as well, scattered throughout a bunch of um, anthologies here and there. Um, so yeah, and then I just just today, 
I sent in the manuscript for my next anthology, which is not We Dare. We called it, and then it got weird. Um, it originally started as a bit of an in-joke, and it turned into a not exactly Halloween-themed, but we're releasing it in time for Halloween, um, paranormal stories. Um, I've got fantasy, steampunk, modern, noir, near future, um, distant future. There, there is a point in, in the stories where, where things take a bend for the paranormal supernatural. And, um, and some of them are hysterically funny. Um, and some of them are darker than black coffee. So, you know, it's a, it's a mix, it's a grab bag. Um, but, uh, that'll be out October 22. Um, yeah. But basically, if you go to my website, um, I have all my titles listed there as well. If if somebody's trying to collect them all, which I don't mind at all. Understood. So we will link all of that in the show notes down below. And so while all of those sound fascinating, we sort of spilled the bag talking in the beginning. But today we want to talk about <laughs> Myrmidons and Elvis Likes It Too Incorporated Herbicided. Um, yeah, so herbicide. where did you get the premise for this universe? Was it psychedelics, Ouija board, uh, overindulging in expired maple syrup? Maple syrup. No. Uh, so, okay, I, I talked about it a little bit at the beginning where what if you could swap parts out? Um, my wife had a friend uh, when I met her, we, uh, I became friends with him as well. And uh, Jesse suffered from Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Um, and it was, it's a cruel disease because the body fails while leaving the, the brain um, completely intact. And um, Jesse uh, passed in 2009 at the age of 29. He was the longest lived person at the time who'd ever suffered from Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And, uh, and at the time, you know, it was kind of one of those like, well, you know, I wish there was a way that we could swap out failing parts. And, um, and, and so that idea, right, where somebody is crippled, but they're staring death in the face and they're like, this is an option for me and I'm going to take it. Um, that came up with the idea for the Myrmidons themselves. Um, and then uh, and then it was late 2018 when I was just getting started with Chris Kennedy. I wrote to him and I said, do you have any plans for a non-Four Horsemen military sci-fi anthology? And Chris said, no, but you could do one. And I kind of like blue screen of panic for a little bit because I hadn't written hardly anything at the point. And, um, and that was on Friday. And by Monday, I was like, you idiot, of course you have to say yes. So I did. And then my story in, uh, in that was the very first story with the Myrmidons and, and it started up the, the setting. Um, and uh, at the time, you know, the plan was to focus entirely on, uh, on the Myrmidons. And then along the way, Selena kind of grew on me and then she became the focus of, of the novel. Um, the other thing, you know, and I mean, it's spoilers, but it's not really spoilers because the story has been published like three years ago. Um, there was a shooting in Toronto. I want to say it was in 2018. Um, and it was a spree shooting. It was a bad guy walking up and down the street with a pistol, um, just shooting random people. And it was terrible. But the really terrifying part for me um, was when I read the story that talked about the shooter's brother. The shooter's brother was in hospital in a coma because he had overdosed on fentanyl. When they did a search warrant on his house, they found 42 kilograms of carfentanyl in the in the house. Carfentanyl, 
is lethal at the microgram dose. They cannot cut it small enough that it doesn't kill people. It's an elephant tranquilizer. It's purely synthetic. And 42 kilos of this stuff properly deployed would be enough to kill a city. And that was horrifying for me. So of course I had to turn it into a story. And that's why the, that's why the book is called Herbicide. Um, you know, it's, it's the death of a city. And, um, and so the Myrmidons being synthetic cyborgs that they are, they're one of, you know, the only ones who are unaffected when, when they crop dust the city with this, you know, lethal drug poison. And, um, and then they end up getting blamed for it. And that's where the rest of the sequels, uh, the rest of the story is going to go with them is them being on the run, uh, being blamed for this horrific crime they didn't commit. Um, but those are the two inspirations uh, for the Myrmidons themselves. Uh, you know, this idea that um, you know people with these wasting diseases could be not necessarily cured, but they could live anyway. And then this horrific incident in Toronto um, that led to an even more scary discovery. So, yeah. Okay. Kind of so before we dig in too much deeper, we normally like to go over the cover, so I'm gonna pull that up. And sure. while I do that, can you tell me how you came up with this, uh, this piece of artwork that is also gracing the wall behind you? Well, um, I'm a nerd and I paint miniatures. And uh, I'm, yeah, so once you uh, zoom back in on me, I'm gonna show you the miniatures that I painted of those two characters. Um, and, uh, and basically I took pictures of them so here's, um, let's see, you can, just, I don't know if it'll focus on them. This is my geek cred, but uh, that's Bellerophon. And then here's Selena. And I keep them on my desk. It's kind of like a keep an eye on the prize kind of a thing. And I've got a couple more of them here. They're characters in the story. I've kitbashed them out of green stuff and, and models from Reaper and that kind of thing and painted them up. And that's, they stare at me every day. And they're like, this is, this is your focus. This is what you're working on. So. So that idea where you've got this enormous towering cyborg with his energy shield um, defending the cat girl in front of um, him, that's, that's kind of a metaphor for the whole story. Um, and, uh, and so I basically took a bunch of pictures of the miniatures and I uh, talked to Chris and I said, look, um, Jake Caleb does amazing work. Um, Jake Caleb Design um, has done a bunch of covers for Chris Kennedy Publishing. And I told him, I want him to do the cover because I've seen his cyberpunk look and stuff, and it's exactly the right vibe for what I want. I don't mind delaying the publication of the book if it makes a difference between whether I get him or not. And uh, and Chris was able to get this brilliant piece of artwork done up um, pretty much exactly how I described it. And uh, so I'm thrilled with the result um, and uh, couldn't be happier. Helps if I remember to unmute. I'm just trying to keep it muted yeah. while, while you're talking so you don't hear Elvis complaining about not going on a walk yet. But no, no um, so for those who couldn't see it or who are listening on the audio version, um, how about we, we make this offer to them? They sign up for it's. This is going to be released in middle of September. They sign up for your newsletter this month. When you release October's newsletter, you will host a, a close up picture of those little figurines so they can check out whatever they missed. Does that sound yeah, fair? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've got uh, I've got um, free giveaway stories on my website um, that work through BookFunnel, and basically you can download some free fiction that I've already written, and um, and that will uh, will get you signed up for the newsletter. They go out on the fifth and the twentieth of every month. Um, although, uh, well, I mean it's the fifth today. I did one earlier this week because um, Herbicide came out on the third, 
so yeah, um, my new, my next one will be out on the twentieth, and I'll and this will this will air. So they'll have the, either the twentieth or the fifth before yep. they watch. It. Just put it in October, and, and that gives them a reason to sign up. Yes. Uh, and I like encouraging people to join authors they like to join their newsletter because you never know when the powers that be will change their mind. Uh, especially those of you like me who enjoy military science fiction, it's a it's a constant battle. Can I put my book up? No, it's got a cover. The cover has a picture of a gun on it. We can't have that. And so, if you really want to stay up to date on authors you like, especially if you write like military topics, sometimes it's just best to join their newsletter and get direct from the source. Um, so, I, so I try to encourage that. But let's move on to the book itself. So, what would your thirty second elevator pitch be? Oh, I should have rehearsed this. Um, 27th century and uh, war is business continued by other means. Um, Paragon Savage is uh, the is the cutting edge lead for um, genetically enhanced um, animal human hybrids. And Selena is their latest prototype. Um, she's awesome. She's badass. And um, when things on the planet get too hot, as the corrupt government uh, starts using Paragon Savage's genies to wage war, war on their uh, enemies, the Myrmidons are brought in to extract some VIPs and maybe hit Paragon Savage for some pay data. And, you know, um, it's just business and business is good, I think is the, uh, is the tagline that we put together for it. So, yeah. And so I'll give you a little sneak behind the curtain, dear listener, is normally the guests will get this about a week in advance. So they have time to think about the questions and come up with their answers. And uh, I will say that because I'm making it up as we go along. <laughs> uh, 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 Jamie's making it up as he goes along. He did not get the questions in advance because Sunday or Saturday night, he said, hey, I don't have any work this weekend and it's the holiday weekend. So if you want to knock this interview out, we could do it now. Yeah. And I thought, well, I don't want to have any issues where I'm scrambling at the last minute like I did. Uh, we've talked about before uh, on the podcast. So I'm like, okay, I could stack an episode. Sure, I'll have this prepared tomorrow. That was like literally 12 hours ago. We agreed to do this. <laughs> so yeah. he's doing all of this cold. He, other than having listened to a few episodes, he's just making it up as he goes. So this is just him on it off the cuff. So I, I would say your elevator uh, speech is pretty good. That normally freezes them, even if they've prepped their answer. Hmm. Well, that was that was my intro at LibertyCon, right? Was I'd written this book and I wanted to to talk to somebody about it, and I had never even heard of an elevator pitch at the time. I was that new, and um, and so yeah. So what's your elevator pitch? My what? <laughs> and I, and and they were like, well, you know, like pitch it to me in thirty seconds. And I started with, well, it's done. And and it went downhill from there, um, but uh, but yeah, you know the it's it's a wicked fun story, and I've got more planned in the series, and um, and I'm hoping to uh, to open it up to other people who are interested and like their their cyberpunk with a deep, uh, with a dose of uh, Star Wars. Okay, so wow, wicked fun! I haven't heard that since I deployed with a guy from Maine. Although for him, everything is wicked awesome. Um, <laughs> So, so I guess Maine is like America's Canada. Sure, it's right there. Um, it's right there. So, what is it that makes your series special? Um, it's a it's a bit of a return to the cyberpunk stuff. We haven't had a lot of that, and obviously, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven came out earlier this year, and you know, to my, many people's disappointment. Um, and um, and it's. It's kind of a, a mishmash of a whole bunch of different genres. Um, you know, cyberpunk is the primary with with the 
um, relationships between the mega corporations and then the contractors that go out and make mischief on their behalf. You know, but if you like mecha combat, it's in there. If you like X-wing dogfights, it's in there. If you like smugglers and bounty hunters and criminals and shenanigans, it's in there. Um, it may not be in this book yet, but there. But I'm certainly planning to to go in that direction. And um, you know, I remember talking to my brother actually um, after the uh, the second season of Mandalorian, and he's talking about how much fun the the criminal side of Star Wars is. You know the the bounty hunters and the crime lords and the huts and you know han solo the smuggler and all that stuff this the hive of scum and villainy and most eisley and that was really where i wanted to kind of delve into in the in the sci-fi setting you know it's not um going to be utopian and shiny and clean and wonderful um it's still going to be cutthroat and there's still going to be um shenanigans on all sides, and so uh, so that's very much kind of where I want to where I want to play with the series is the uh, is the cyberpunk troublemaker side of things. Okay, and so um, what tropes do you feel like you uh, you included in the Myrmidons book? Um, well, I mean the whole the whole like, Greek Spartan thing in particular. Um, you know, you can tell just from the mohawk on Bellerophon's helmet there on the cover, you know, it's not often you're going to see somebody walking around with the horsehair helmet and an, elect, um, an energy shield with a blaster. Um, Selena, you know, at the end of it, she's a cat girl, um, a cat girl assassin. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we kind of, we play, I play that straight in the sense that, um, you know, she's been genetically ed edited to be um, superior physically, um, stronger, faster, tougher, more agile, that kind of a thing. Um, you know, with mega corporations, you've always got like the evil faceless, um, uh, scumbags who are pulling the strings for the little people below. Um, the, uh, the book itself is set on the planet of Montoya in La Republica del Escobar. And so I had to brush up on my Google translate Spanish for a lot of it. Um, because the setting assumes that shortly after, um, well, you know, by mid 21st century, we will have started colonizing planets. And, you know, there's two ways that, that planets are going to get colonized. Either gonna, it's going to be an effort by a country or it's going to be an effort by a business. And so the different planets that are going to exist and the different systems um, that are going to exist in this setting um, are very heavily descended from um you know an, an earth that you will recognize um you know the united states uh, the united systems of texas is like one of the largest um interstellar polities there is because in every you know in texas everything's bigger that kind of a thing of course naturally and they're gonna get bigger egos because of you now yeah yeah so um you know there's there's all kinds of sci-fi inspirations that i drew into it for for little bits and pieces there um, I'm a big gamer, and so, you know, playing games like Elite Dangerous, where you're racing around star systems in your ship. Um, I love the uh, the mecha art from uh, the Rifts tabletop game, you know, the, the mechs and the robots and the power armor and all that kind of thing that gets rolled into there. It's, it's a huge mash of everything that I love about science fiction. So, um, you know, I think it would probably be like a, a list of Shorter, the, the list of tropes that I used would be shorter if I said what I didn't draw on. Okay, and now onto the story itself. So what can you tell us about the main characters that you haven't already 
Um, what makes them distinct in the world of sci-fi? Well, Selena is fresh out of the tank. Um, the opening scene is her um, gaining consciousness for the first time and being really confused as to why she knows all these things when she has you know, no prior existence to draw on. Um, and it's because you know, with her being this clone in the tank, she's received this post-hypnotic um, training programs and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I've heard, I, talking to other people about this story, um, you know, she's um, above average intelligence, but she's got like a wisdom of three because she's so naive to start. She has no real um, worldly experience. And in fact, like it boggles her mind, you know, that it would take somebody 18 or 19 or 20 years to get to the point where they're old enough and mature enough that they could join the military and start fighting because, you know, she was rolling in the dojo at Paragon Savage week two, you know, that kind of thing. So this, so this entire concept of time for her is, is skewed by the fact that she's had no childhood. She woke up and hit the gym and went from there. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's a, um, a bit about Selena and, uh, and, um, and where she's coming from. Um, with the Myrmidons themselves, they're veterans, they're experienced, they're very much the opposite of everything Selena is. Um, the Myrmidon program um, in uh, Hellenic space, um, if you're suffering from one of these diseases where you will die, then you can volunteer for the program and they will um, perform the cyborg body swap and then you serve. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like the GI Bill, but in reverse where you get the education after you're well, in Myrmidon's case, you get the body up front and then you serve for the, you know, the next 20 years. And then you're free to hit the open market as a, uh, as a private contractor. So the Myrmidons are all um, experienced and, uh, and they're, you know, tough um, with them being cyborgs. If they get a limb blown off, then they have little three uh, packs that can 3d fabricate a new joint to get the limb back in place. It may not be as strong as their normal one, but at least they can, like, do you remember that cartoon or that ad from when we were kids where it's like, I can put my arm back on, you can't, so play safe? There's, <laughs> right? There's a lot of that with, with the Myrmidons because their parts are replaceable. Um, and so that does kind of make them inhuman in a sense, um, you know, in that their, their concerns are not those of people who still have their meat bodies. Um, but, and at the same time, they try to be honorable. Um, they try to take contracts that, you know, are, um, if not honest, um, you know, it, it's, it's fair game as far as mega corporations shenanigans are concerned. Um, and, uh, and the problem for them is going to be, um, you know, the after effects of being blamed for this horrific crime. Um, how are they going to react? How are they going to respond? What if they, what if they're no longer legitimate? contractors and they're kind of well i mean i'll tell you that right now the second book the title is disavowed that ought to tell you where their where their arc is going um and uh and so you know you've got to kind of hit rock bottom before you can go again so um yeah that's that's about them what about any secondary characters um were there any ones that were especially <laughs> memorable for you well, I'll tell you, one of the other guys that I was talking to about the story, he gave me crap for killing off his favorite character. And I was like, who is that? Um, and it's director Ramirez. Um, spoilers, everyone dies. 
Um, so Ramirez is Selena's primary handler. And, um, and the way that uh, um, this gentleman phrased it was, he seems to be the only guy at the corporation who had a soul. And, um, and I hadn't thought about it, but, uh, but yeah, that was, um, you know, I, I portrayed him as sympathetic. He's doing his best to look out for the genies, uh, knowing the, the coercive nature of the relationship between the genies and Paragon Savage. Um, and, uh, and he's trying to do the right thing. Um, even though, you know, mega corporations are like profit, 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 that's their priority. So, um, you know, he was, he was neat to write because he's, uh, because the genies are considered property and they're not, um, legally people when things go off the rails, he's the one who has to go back to the client who's basically renting this, this cat girl Sicario and um and correcting um the behavior of the client um and the client is not used to being corrected we'll just put it that way um but ramirez i uh was really cool to write and um and i liked him a lot so uh yeah um there's uh relatively few other consistent characters a lot of the the novel is um selena as the lone agent kind of thing um and then her supports so um, as far as secondary characters, I'd say Ramirez was a good one. So where did you get the name Genies from? Is that like any, um, like Jen from the... the Genetically engineered. Oh, okay. I've, I've heard that used for, for Genesis <laughs> as well. So I wasn't sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's just genetically engineered. Okay. So does your story have any bad guys without giving away spoilers that they, that they have to confront? Not in this book. So it's one um, of man versus the universe kind of enemy? Well, it's um, it's it's Selena's um, desire to... Well, I guess... Okay, I guess the CEO for Paragon Savage would be one of the bad guys. Um, he uh, Only in that he's acting the way that you would expect the CEO of a megacorporation to act. And Selena's the one who's suffering and paying the price. Um, so, uh, so when she handles him, um, you know, it, it's a turning point for the book. Um, and, uh, and, and she very near, I, I mentioned, I think the methionine protocol earlier, um, when she finally does that impulsive, reckless, um, thing to, to take control of her own destiny for once, it almost kills her because of the methionine protocol. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, it's the struggle for her where, where they still have this leash that, that controls her and controls the genies. Um, as far as the whodunit, it's going to have to wait because we're not going to answer that question in this, in this book. Okay. That sounds fair. Um, so speaking of characters, we ask everyone this, although you might give a different answer than most. But uh, as authors, we do a lot of horrible things to our characters. Yeah. Um, so if yours ever met you in a back alley and they said, you know what? I know that Jamie Gibson and he did horrible things to me. How's that going to play out? <laughs> Not very well. Not very well at all. Um, yeah, there's like between the Myrmidons and the genies, you know, they're, they're almost leaning right into, into superhero level um, combat abilities. And, and in part, that is because 
of games like Rifts, where where you can have characters that are going up and fighting against you know guys driving warbots that are like thirty feet tall and have rail guns and missile launches and all that kind of thing. And the Myrmidons in particular are cyborgs; they're war cyborgs, and uh, and so um, there's a reason their services are in such high demand, um, and that's because they are incredibly lethal. Um, so so yeah, if if I ran into my characters in a back alley, it's not going to go well. I thought your uh, your your sparring experience as a, as a Mountie might uh, might give you a leg up, but no, 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 not even close. All right, so Myrmidons Inc. Um, herbicide is clearly part of the series. I know because it says so on Amazon. Andrew told us, but there's currently only one book out in this series, and you mentioned more is coming. So where do you see this uh, series going? What's next? Uh, so um, tomorrow, I'm going to start work on book two, um, which will be Myrmidons Inc. Disavowed. Um, I'm going to be writing. I'm I'm hoping to have that uh, the draft finished by end of October. Um, then I'm going to be taking uh, a bit of time off to write the sequel to Pacific Shogun, and then it's going to be back to Myrmidon's book three, which will be Ruthless. And then the fourth book is going to be uh, Vindicated. Um, I'm planning that four book arc to begin with, and we'll see if other people want to jump on board as we go and we can start telling other stories in the setting. Um, but uh, but that's kind of where I would like it to go is um, into a shared universe that's a little bit thieves worldish, where where you can have um, you can just pick up a series in the setting uh, written by me, written by somebody else, and enjoy it without um, needing to have read other stuff in the series to have it um, really fit or make sense. Um, you know, one of the amazing things with Four Horsemen is that we are now 72 books deep. Um, roughly half build on each other. And then there's a whole bunch of spin-offs and side stories and the anthologies and that kind of a thing. Um, but uh, but it, it can be daunting um, for somebody to pick up Cartwright's Cavaliers and find out that there's 50 books before you catch up to the books that are coming out now. If you're a voracious reader, that's totally cool. Um, but, uh, but that's the strength of Chris and Mark Wandry and Kevin Eikenberry and these guys who are able to, to plot 12 books at a time. Um, and I'm not there, you know, maybe by book four, I can start looking a couple books further. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm more used to that three to four book, um, series length. And so that's kind of where I've been approaching this. Um, you know, that's not to say that I'm going to write four Murdon books and I'll be done with it. Just that's as far as I'm plotting out at this point. Okay. So we know that all the literary universes, at least the good ones, have their own internally consistent rules of science, technology, and or magic. So what sort of um, tech or magic could we expect from these books? Um, so I've, I won't say that it's um, hard science in terms of um, how gravitics work, but um, anti-gravity tech is fairly ubiquitous in that, um, you know, you've got um, grav trucks and grav cars that zip around town and they're able to um, get up off the ground and go zooming around. But it's the same technology that drives ships um, inside a star system. And, uh, and basically, um, the faster the ship, um, which accelerates along a Fibonacci sequence acceleration profile, basically... Um, you know, the fastest ships run at 233 gravities. 
Um, if you want to go faster, then what you have to do is increase what a gravity means to the people inside the ship. Um, so if you've got you know people on board the ship who are able to handle three, four, five gravities, then suddenly you can take that acceleration profile and really get ripped. Um, but, uh, but the, that's the only way for the larger ships that uh, move slower to be able to combat, um, the, the X-wing fighter type, um, ships that will go ripping around at, at, you know, in incredible speeds is, uh, is that they need to exert more G's on the crew in order to be able to keep up. Um, you know, and then I've, uh, I actually like built a spreadsheet it's nerdy but i built a spreadsheet to be able to to figure out okay well you know if they're going to be on a constant acceleration profile at 233 g's to get to this um planet and the planet is this many light seconds away then how long does it actually take to get there if they're accelerating for half of it and decelerating for half of it um because space is really really big and um and one of the one of the things from Mandalorian, just to kind of go sideways on it, was the Frog Lady episode where he wasn't able to use his his jump, and he starts complaining immediately about how long this trip is going to take, and uh, and you never really got a sense of just how long he actually was flying with Frog Lady on board, um, but with uh, with Myrmidons, with the spreadsheet that I've tallied, I can be like, well, you know, Earth is 500 light seconds from the sun. So if they're traveling that distance, it's going to take this many hours at this acceleration profile. And then we can and then and then maybe it all happens in the background, but it can become strategic and tactical calculations when we start dogfighting and that kind of thing. Um, and then uh, and then jumping between systems works differently. Um, and unusually, rather than um, you know coming in from out system and uh, and arriving like at a distance from the sun and then having to to coast in from there, um, I took a bit of a page from Elite Dangerous. Anybody who's played the game will know when you jump to a system, you pop out danger close to the sun. And if you're not Johnny on the spot with turning and burning for out system, then you can go for a sun dive and you're going to need a new spaceship. And and so that's the idea is that um, as these ships are are racing at FTL speeds into a system, it's the sun's own gravitational field that pops them out of light speed. And uh, and now they've got to um, turn and, and get themselves oriented to where they need to go and, uh, and burning outbound. So what it really means is from a, again, military sci-fi point of view, Ships arriving from outs from other systems, they are going to arrive in a very predictable sphere, and uh, and so you're going to have defensive um, uh, structures there, battle stations that are all going to be like inside Mercury orbit, um, in order to be able to hammer any kind of invading force, and so that that's partly what sets up this idea with the mega corporations hiring the small contractors um, to go out and make mischief on their behalf, because because there are no um, not our no, but but it is catastrophically expensive for you to take the spaceship equivalent of a carrier battle group and send it off to a star system to pick a fight. Um, you know, it is much more viable to send a quick little speedboat that will zip in um, and then be able to to make their way outbound from there. So, um, Myrmidons doesn't put much of a focus on the space stuff yet. But I figured out how it's going to work when I do, um, and uh, and we're going to go from there. 
So do you use any programs besides just an Excel spreadsheet to uh, to build the universe? I know there are some mapping software programs through like uh, Campaign Cartographer um, that let you actually build interstellar maps. So you can say it's X distance from start system one to system two, and you can start building like 3D renderings of the system so you can sort of look at it in real time. Uh, I have not done that. It sounds cool. The best I've done so far is I've fired up a game of Stellaris and I've print screened the, <laughs> I've screen captured the map and um, and then I started drawing bubbles and lines and stuff and I went, this is ridiculous. I don't need to do this at this point. So um, really all I've done is I've kind of come up with um, the different polities that exist. There's, like I said, the United Systems of Texas, La Republica del Escobar, the Star Kingdom of Windsor, which is like the, the you know, rebuilding the British Commonwealth, um, that kind of thing. Uh, Dixie is another one. Um, there's a whole bunch. And um, just kind of like putting together a list of, of the systems that they own and control. So um, like in, in Herbicide, when you meet the Myrmidons, they're chasing a guy who's captured um, a bunch of people from Rideau. And uh, he's basically like going to go sell them into slavery. And so there's a stern chase with um, the Myrmidons ship that they partnered with, which is called the Pandora's Hope. Um, and, uh, and they're jumping from system to system and, and trying to cut the angles and, and carve hours of travel off of their, uh, their race across space and time until they finally wind up in the, uh, in the system named for Bonnie and Clyde, which you know might give you a hint of... Um, of who and what the system's all about. And, uh, and so like, it's not, it's not heavy in that, um, that series, but I was basically just working off a list of systems that would kind of be in, in a line to get to each other. I didn't know that campaign photographer did that. I might look into that. That's a good idea. So I used, um, fractal mapping, which was idiot proof as far as usability, but it's only good for what you're doing. Like you wouldn't be able to put that in a book and have it look professional. Whereas campaign cartographer, once you're done with a map with that, you could put it in a fantasy novel and it would stand up with maps in any of the classics as far as wow. what you can do with it. But the, uh, the barrier to entry skill wise is just not there. Yeah. Um, like, uh, and someone who's better at tech than me, a lot of people use it for like gaming and stuff and they say, no, 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 it's great. It's easy. Um, and what do you like some sort of computer moron? And I'm like, yes. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's 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 gorgeous work that it can do. So, like campaign cartographer has been around for a long time. They must be many, many, many editions past the old hex-based thing that I was using in high school. Um, yeah, um, it's 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 pretty. I mean, I know it's the industry standard now for professional cartographers. Huh, cool. um, the people that do that for a hobby. But yeah, so there are programs out there. I just was curious how you were doing that. No. All right, so spreadsheets. That works for now. Of all of the tech that you invented for your universe, what would you want for your daily use? Um, new knees. New knees and a new back. I would take cyborg replacements of those in a heartbeat. Okay, so your wife is weighed in. I was thinking it'd be something yeah. cool, and then I could ask you how you would abuse that tech, because we like to ask that follow-up. But new knees, kind of hard to abuse those, other than just normal life. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not looking to go out and cause mischief, um, despite what my business card says. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I miss, you know, not snap, crackle, and popping like Rice Krispies when I'm walking around. So, understood, understood. I get that moment sometimes when I can predict the weather. Oh, yeah. My knee. 
Yeah, I feel you. Who knew getting blown up was bad for your health? Huh. Go figure. They didn't put that in the recruiting poster. <laughs> no. Um, so how did you go about creating? Because we you've established that they've got kinds of aliens. Um, I would consider um, generated constructs like the uh, the cat lady be almost along the par of like an alien creature. So you've got all these kinds of beings other than just base humans. So how do you go about creating them? Do you let your nightmares inspire you? Do you let nature sort of mold you? Do you like, how do you create these things? Well, it's a mix, you know, um, role-playing games are so well developed for, for that kind of a thing that, that you can go through, you know, an infinite number of alien generators and stuff like that. But really I, I was looking for, um, stuff that would be readily identifiable and uh, you know it didn't have to be like there are no new stories there's just new ways of telling them and similarly um you know people joke about star trek you know and distinguishing between different kinds of aliens based on the shape of their forehead um obviously that's that's because of the limitations of um you know tv makeup and stuff like that but generally speaking like evolution is going to favor certain things over other things so i wanted cyborgs i wanted the genies well with the genies um you know cats are quick and agile uh wolves are strong and brutal and they work well in teams and rhinos are tough and so those are the three main um animal hybrid flavors that paragon savage works with um on the pandora's hope crew we've got another study in contrasts um, the ogre-like uh, loadmaster um, is called a Jotun, um, and and yeah, you know, picture picture an ogre but with like silver tendrilled mohawk thing going on. That's that's the loadmaster guy compared to Thunderpaws, and Thunderpaws is the aliens are called Mogwais because they resemble the Mogwais from the Gremlins movie, and that was the first thing that came to mind when humanity encountered them, and the name stuck. So Thunderpaws is about two feet tall, and he is brilliant. He is the astrogator science officer on board the Pandera's Hope. Um, you know, it doesn't quite have sarcasm figured out yet, but that's just because English is such a weird language to begin with. Um, but uh, but those are some of the aliens that that you're going to meet in Herbicide. Um, my story in uh, and then it got weird features a different alien race that hasn't been introduced yet. Um, and basically, uh, think dryads, um, you know, humanoid ish, uh, over large eyes. And then they've got like antlers instead of hair. Um, but the Voshans, the Alari and the Voshans are one people who separated, uh, during an apocalypse, um, a couple thousand years ago. And the Voshans are the ones who ended up, um, stuck on the apocalyptic, cataclysm strewn planet while the alari are the ones who were able to get off planet and out into the stars and that relationship is a major focus of the story in um and then it got weird so i'm i'm building it up kind of slowly introducing different um alien races um you know you you mentioned galaxy's edge earlier and one of the things that i really dig with uh, galaxy's edge is is how they take their time introducing the different aliens you know, you've got the G, you've got the Koobs, uh, you've got the uh, Skriz, the Wabonki, um, you know, and and you go to any GE fan 
Um, they know exactly what a Kub is. They know exactly who the G are. They know exactly what's, what Scriz is. And, and that's because you didn't just like drinking from the fire hose hammer them with a thousand different alien races all at once. And, uh, and so I want to take my time and really um, develop these alien races so that they're three-dimensional, that they have um, cultural values, that they um, have ways of doing things and reasons for doing them the way that they do. Um, and be distinguishable from from each other. I don't want to just have Romulans and Vulcans, you know, who are you know pointy-eared humans, and some of them are logical and some of them are angry. So that's that's kind of where I'm coming at for for that. Okay, um, so clearly uh, this interview is winding down. We've been going for about an hour and a half. Um, but before we wrap up, was there anything about Myrmidons Incorporated uh, herbicide that we didn't ask you before we move on? I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot. Okay. And just as a reminder, dear listener, if you go to his website, link will be in the show notes. And you sign up for his newsletter when you hear this on October 5th. Uh, he will include pictures of the little figurines. So this yes. is especially important for all of our podcast uh, audience. And we love you guys. We started as podcast only. And so you guys, you guys are awesome. But uh, if you sign up for his newsletter, you can see those little figurines he kit bashed and then painted. Yeah. So, all home. right. Um, as we bring this puppy to a close, can you tell listeners um, how they can find you? Um, my website is ibsenwrites.ca. Um, and because Ibsen confuses people, it's I-B-S-O-N. It's like Mel Gibson, the actor, but without the G at the start. Um, so sure. it's all one word, ibsenwrites.ca. And um, on my website, I've got contact details. I've got free short stories that I've written that um, I'm now giving away uh, as free downloads when you sign up for my newsletter. Um, and it's a mix. There's fantasy, there's uh, Four Horsemen, there's um, diesel punk, sky pirate, urban fantasy, um, all kinds of different stuff. Um, so those are all all giveaways off the website. Um, I've done, designed a couple of challenge coins associated to Christopher Woods's Fallen World, uh, Fallen World Universe, and uh, you can email me if you want to buy one of those. Um, and that's and that's basically my website. Otherwise, my primary social media presence is through Facebook. Um, I've got my personal profile and then my Ibsen Writes um, business profile. So. Okay. And you can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades. Anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. You can find us on Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can join all of our online Facebook shenanigans over there at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast you can support the show at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley again buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley be sure to put in the comment section on the uh, donation that is for the podcast i promise i will keep uh doc saska and nick garber duly intoxicated they will drink until their liver surrenders um and if you want to do your support on a reoccurring basis over on anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades they have that option as well um all of it is appreciated we uh, greatly appreciate our current backers that help us uh fund what we're doing here uh, and then finally I've, I've made this comment before but I'll, I'll do it again is if there is anybody that you want us to interview 
Uh, we are certainly open to suggestions. If there are any topics you want for Fireside Chats, we'll do that too. Just uh, engage us on, on the email, on the podcast uh, group on Facebook, uh, on all the ways you can reach out to us. And we're certainly open to suggestions and making this the kind of podcast you want to listen to. So we definitely don't want it to be stale. And so that is an option if you've got, if you've got a burning desire. If you've got a favorite author you want me to track down, I will stalk them. I will hide outside their window and de hand deliver that letter. I mean, you know, except for Elon Musk. That restraining yeah, he's got that restraining order, but you know, like maybe he didn't really, really mean it, and maybe the judge was overreacting. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll just ask him again. It'll be fine. Um, so <laughs> before it gets any weirder, and I can get weird, uh, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and uh, Doc Seska, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And one more time, because Doc isn't here, as we close, I will remind you my one piece of wisdom, pineapple does not belong on pizzas.